Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Church, would you bow with me? God, you are our only hope in a world that is broken and afflicted by sin. God, you are a rescuer and a redeemer and a savior and you are trustworthy. God, we give you praise for the truths that we just sang, that that there is joy among your people because you've brought us from death to life. Lord, I pray that as we consider your word this morning, that we would be open and receptive to what you want to say to us in the hearing of your word. God, that you would move us from, if we're in a place of complacency, to a place of of confidence and boldness. God, if we're in a place of despair, that you would lead us into a place of depending not upon ourselves, but upon Christ. God, whatever you want to accomplish today, we pray that you would do it and that you would find us open and receptive to your prompting and your leading. For the glory of Christ, we ask it, and in his name we pray. Amen. So we're in Psalm 25. Psalm 25 is 22 verses long, and last week we had the opportunity to consider verses 1 through 3, but we read the whole psalm, and and we saw the psalm has clues which suggest to us that David is facing enemy opposition as the king of the Lord's people. And in response to enemy attack, to adversity and attack, David writes this psalm, and we, we were reminded last week that we all face enemies in this world. Satan doesn't want us to succeed, our own sinful, selfish Flesh doesn't want us to stay faithful to the Lord, and so we began to talk about facing enemy attack, and the way that we do that, we set our, set our hope entirely on God. We lift our souls to Him, we, we trust Him, we, we wait for Him, and today we pick up the pace a little bit as we make our way through Psalm 25. I was planning to go through 15, but uh, as we were singing, the Lord impressed upon me, maybe we would just make it through verse 11 today. And because we right now have one service, I have that freedom. Isn't that awesome? That while we're singing the songs, God can say a better place to stop is verse 11. And because I haven't already preached this sermon before, I have the freedom to make that decision under the Lordship of Christ. I I love that. So we're going to consider a psalm, uh, verses 4 through 11. We're going to consider a message I'm calling a prayer of trust in a season of trouble prayer of trust in a season of trouble. Hear with me the word of God beginning in verse 4. We'll go down through verse 7 to begin. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Now last week, as I I said just a moment ago, we saw in verses 1 through 3, David expressing confidence that those who trust in the Lord will not be put to shame. And he's speaking 
of the ultimate shame, the, the shame that will come to those who, when Christ returns, will be ashamed because of their sin, because they deserve judgment. Now, a challenge for us, church, is that we don't know when the judgment is coming, right? We, we know that it is coming. We don't, we, we don't know when it will come. No one knows the end date that's going to be etched on their headstone, right? You know the date that's going to be on the beginning of the headstone. At least I assume you know your birth date. But you don't know the last day. Neither do we know the day that Christ will return. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says no one has information concerning the day or the hour of His return. But He then tells us it's going to be like the days of Noah. Right? People are going to be living as though they are not accountable to King Jesus. And then boom, Jesus will return faster than the flood waters rose and lifted Noah's boat safely above the earth until it could be set back down after it had been washed clean. Our enemies want us to forget about the judgment day. They want us to live for ourselves. They want us to think that we can trust in God but live for ourselves. They want to force this dichotomy into our minds. Yes, I've set my hope in God. I walked an aisle. I signed a card. I got wet in a baptistry. And now I'll just live my life however I, in my sinful flesh, want to live it. But David understands, as we get into verse 4, that we cannot accept that dichotomy. We cannot accept that we think we trust God while we ignore His ways. If we're really lifting our soul to the Lord, if we're really waiting upon Him, if we're really not going to be ashamed in the last day because we are faithful to God, then that means we're going to do what He says. So in verses 4-7, through seven, David transitions from genuine trust in God to a genuine desire to follow God. And what he shows us in verses 4-7 through seven, is that we must be teachable and rely upon God's undeserved mercy. In seasons of trouble, we've got to be teachable and rely upon God's undeserved mercy. In Psalm 1-6, we read that the Lord knows the way, singular, of the righteous. In Matthew 7-14, Jesus says, The gate, one gate, is narrow. And the way, singular, is hard that leads to life. And those who find that are few. There's only one way to be right with the Lord. It is to trust in the living Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Heavenly Father except through Him, John 14, 6. And yet, look at verse 4. David calls upon the Lord. These are imperatives. God, do this in my life. He calls upon the Lord to make known to him, to make him know the Lord's ways, plural. To teach him his paths, plural. So which is it? Is there one way or are there multiple ways? Here's what's happening. David is not saying that there are multiple paths. He is instead saying that the one way of the Lord is, has to be new and fresh in our life every day. He's, he's giving voice to the reality that we cannot live on yesterday's faithfulness. It's not enough to say, Lord, I followed you yesterday. He's calling us to follow Him in the one way today. We need today for God to open our minds and our hearts to His way in a world that is set against Him and His 
people. As enemies test us with fresh temptations and new angles and new threats, we find new ways that we are to walk in His one way. As Wilson writes, the one way of the righteous is actually composed of many moments and decisions of faithfulness. This is true in your marriage. This is true in your parenting. Did you know the middle school phase is different from the toddler phase? I'm here to tell you it is. It's just different. It's a little more challenging at times. They talk back a little more. They begin to form their own opinions and thoughts. Some of them crazy. And the one way of the Lord that I've got to communicate to my 13-year-old daughter, the way that I communicate the way is a bit different than when she was three. I'm always learning and being sanctified and discipled. God, in this season of trouble, you're not that much trouble, Elizabeth, I love you. But in this season of trouble, God, sanctify me, show me your way, because Satan wants to take my daughter out. The world wants to take my son and my daughter out. The world wants them to believe a lie about their God and about themselves. And this is a psalm of trust and a season of trouble. God, teach me your ways. Cause me to know your paths. So in verse 4, David prays that God would cause him to know the paths that he should take. That word know in verse 4, if you, if you write in your Bible, underline it, highlight it. It's, it's the word, it's not just of knowledge in your brain. It's the word of experiential knowledge. It's the word that is used when Adam knew Eve, his wife. Y'all hear? It's intimacy. It's closeness. It's not abstract. It's not distant. Hey, God, I want, I want your Bible to just be an instruction manual over there for my life. And I, I check it, and then I do it, but there's no relationship at all. No, God, I want to know you. I want to know your way. I want to be connected to you. When I face enemy opposition in the world, when I face temptation in my life, I want your way to be alive to who I am. I want to be connected to it. The Lord delights to show us how to live in a way that honors Him so much that we, our life is united to His way. In verse 5, we learn David wants to do the right thing. Yes, but not just the right thing. He wants to do the right thing for the right reason. He doesn't just want to follow God's way to get out of a jam. Have you ever known people like this? I've seen adult children like in their 30s and 40s and they just keep making the same boneheaded mistakes. Well, I went bankrupt again. I, I got in debt for the third time. Hey, Dad, could I have a little more money? And Dad just keeps giving it. This is totally not in the sermon, but sidebar, at some point, it's not good to give your kids gifts that lead them to continue to be irresponsible. There's some dad here who needed to hear that this morning. At some point, you got to say stop and, and be responsible. But that's not what David's doing here. He's not saying, God, just get me out of this jam and then I'll go back to living for myself. No, God, I, I want you. I want to be united to you and your 
way. Show me your path and, and teaching because it will honor the God of my salvation. I wouldn't even have life and purpose and meaning apart from you. So show me your way. God's way includes His people getting more of Him. Verse 5, to, to be led into God's truth. Do you see that? Lead me into your truth. The word truth, again, speaks more about more than just information or theological accuracy. Now, it's, it, it includes information. It includes theological accuracy, but the word truth here is really referring to God's faithfulness, His unchanging character, the fact that God is true. David is saying, when I obey you in seasons of attack, that is when I most learn about the unwavering faithfulness of my God who saves. He continues in, in verse 5, the, the first line, do you see it there? He urges the Lord, teach me. And then he doesn't tell us what he wants to be taught. What is, it, what is he saying? Well, in context, he's saying, teach me, God, who you are and who I am. Teach me how entirely dependent upon you that I am and how reliable and trustworthy you are. Let me not depend on myself in this moment, but God, let me depend on you. So let me ask you, church, are you teachable? Are you willing to say to God this morning in the, in the season of trouble that you brought into this room, God, teach me. Show me who I am. Show me who you are. Do you see yourself as a work in progress? Or, you, or do you just settle for what the world says about your life? You know, the world tells you you're either an introvert or an extrovert. You're either a thinker or a feeler and so on. And so I've met, I've met feelers who are like, well, I just don't want to think too much about the Bible because I'm more of a feeler. I'm more of a doer. Phooey! Meditate on the Word of God. Get to know the Word of God. What you think and what you believe impacts what you feel and what you do. God wants to get His Word into your heart and into your head that you will be transformed in your activity. But some people accept a label that the world gave them and they never want to change because, well, that's just who I am. No, it's not. God saved you to make you who you are, make you in Him, to make you different than who you are. I used to be incredibly extroverted. And over time, under the Lordship of Christ, I mean, I've still stray that way a bit, but I've become much more introverted. Seasons of solitude, seasons of reflection, seasons of study. And some of you took a Myers-Briggs when you were 18 and you went into the workforce and you're like, well, this is who I am. I'm never going to change. Yes, you will. God will change you. He will shape you by the Spirit of God. He will allow you, when you are tempted to be timid but you need to be bold, He will allow you not to say, well, I'm just an introvert. That's not for me to do. He will allow you to be bold when you need to be bold. For those of you who are extroverted and you're like, well, that's just who I am. I'm brash and I just, it just comes out of my mouth and I just say it. The Holy Spirit of God will change you. And if you're not open to Him changing you, I have a question. Are you with David willing to say, teach me? Spirit of God, change me. Rest on me influence my thought life, influence how I parent my child, influence how I relate to my wife. Don't accept the lie from the world that who you are is who you have to remain because the Spirit of God dwells in you and applies the life of Christ to you that you might become more like Him. Teach me. 
The last line of verse 5. David adds this. For you, I wait all the day long. Are you willing to wait for the Lord all day long? Is He your hope and your stay? Can you say this morning the Lord is worth the wait? That you will not run ahead of God? That you will not substitute your way for His way no matter how difficult? You know what? I hate to wait. I absolutely hate it. I hate red lights. Last Sunday we were setting up for wind shape. I had lunch at like 1 and I looked down at my watch. It was 9 o'clock and we still had some work to do and I was starving. So I got in my car and I went to Wendy's drive-thru. There's four cars in the drive-thru and what do I do when I go to the drive-thru? I start the stopwatch. Because I want to know how long did I wait for this number one. With ketchup and mustard only and cheese. And some, I love Wendy's fries. Wendy's fries are good. When you get them crispy and, and you salt them well. So I sat there for 16 minutes to get a number one with a Coke and fries. I love a nice, crispy, well-salted fry. Stuck my hand in the bag as the light went green and I turned on. And I had to get back to the church. I stuck my hand down in the bag and I felt something cold. And I was like, surely that's a pack of ketchup. I had a box of frozen fries. I hate waiting. But waiting on the Lord is different. On the other side of waiting on the Lord in your marriage, waiting on the Lord in your parenting, waiting on the Lord in that strained relationship with your boss is a greater capacity to appreciate and to know and to enjoy and to rely upon God. God is on the other side of the wait. When we wait on the Lord and do His will in seasons that are hard, a greater understanding of the gospel by which we have been saved is there. A greater recognition of how much wiser and higher and better and trustworthy is God than all other things is there. When you wait on the Lord for 16 minutes or 16 days or 16 years, you don't get frozen fries. You get a greater capacity to know God. And when that happens, it leads you to exclaim, as David did in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Is your God worth the wait? He's worth the wait. David won't take the compromises and the quick relief offered by his enemies. He will wait to know more of God. And, and David believes that God can be relied upon to answer his prayer because he's merciful and faithful and good. We see that in, in verses 6 and 7. You see that? He doesn't pray as one who's deserving, but as one who is dependent. It's, a, it's more of a plea. God, remember, Lord, remember your mercy, verse 6. The, the word mercy communicates the, the feelings of a mother to the child in her womb, or to her newborn child. Did you know that when a child is born, and we've just had three babies born in the life of our church in the last 11 days, which is awesome. Did you know that when a child is born, it has done nothing for his mother or her mother other than cause her to be nauseous and exhausted for nine months? But when the baby is born, the mom immediately wants to give this little life-sucking force even more of herself. David says to the Lord, remember your mercy. 
look at me like that. I recognize I am totally dependent upon you, God. I recognize I don't deserve your presence in this moment, but remember your mercy as I face my enemies. Then in verse 7, he prays for the Lord to remember him according to his steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word kesed. It means covenant faithfulness or enduring loyalty. It is a love that is not based on waning emotions or circumstances. It is based on a settled reality that God is God and does not break His promises. He is chosen from of old. Do you see that in verse 6? To conquer Satan and redeem sinners and renew His fallen creation by sending His Son. And David calls upon God to remember His work in the world and how He has chosen to use David in it. David is asking God to intervene and to keep His promise in an otherwise hopeless situation. God's promise to send His Son will go through David So by asking the Lord to remember him in verse 7, he is asking God to remember his plan and to preserve David's life in the face of enemy attack. Why? Because God's promises hang in the balance. And the reality is when you face enemies in your life, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your workplace, just, just in the inner turmoil of your soul, eternity is at stake. Will you be teachable? Will you lean upon God? Will you rely upon His mercy? Will you say, God, remember me for your glory and for your purposes? Or will you check out and default to your sinful flesh? Then in verse 7, David asked the Lord not to remember his sins or his transgressions. Sins means to miss the mark intentionally. Transgression means to to rebel against God. We We don't know the sins that David has in mind. Perhaps the sin with Bathsheba and her husband Uriah, early in his time as king, whatever sins he has in mind, Wilson says this, he asked God not to allow these confessed sins to stand in the way of divine deliverance. Because God is faithful to keep His promise, because He is merciful, David can pray for the Lord to forget his sins. And as David faces his enemies in doing the Lord's will, he wants, to efface, he wants to face them in the awareness of the Lord's presence. Did you know you can't stand against your enemies without the Lord? You will falter. You will give in to temptation. You will fail in your marriage in, if you try to do it in your own strength. So David says, get these sins out of here so I can know you, God. I don't want any sin to stand between me and you. So David asked God to show him how to live in this moment and to forgive him of any failings, not because he deserves it, but do you see it? For the sake of the Lord's goodness. Verse 7. When David's sins are forgiven and he overcomes his enemies, the promise to come through David will remain and the Lord will be seen by good. Not just in his life, but all who are observing his life and the way that he faces his enemies. We recognize, church, that we deserve nothing. We confess our sin, and in the moments of temptation and trial and struggle, we ask God to give us victory. Why? Not just for our good, but that His goodness might be known by others and that we would have a story to tell. David continues in verse 8 through 10 Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. The word humble there means means poor or needy or afflicted. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. 
The second thing I want you to see from this passage is we can pray with confidence because the Lord is good and upright. We can pray with confidence not because we're great, but because God is good. He, he keeps His word. He does what He says. Do you see the, the way the passage shifts from, four, from verse 4 to 7 to verses 8 through 10? In verses 4 through 7, he's begging God to do something in his life. Teach me, show me, guide me, lead me, forgive me. And then in verses 8 through 10, he's like, you're going to do it. He, he, he moves from second person address to the third person. He's, he's preaching a sermon now. He was praying, and now he's preaching a sermon. Let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about the God I just prayed to, that I asked to do all these things in my life. He's going to do them. Why? Because he's good. I asked you to do these things for the sake of your goodness, and I know you're going to do them because you're good and you're upright. David has hope because God does what he says. He's not praying to get stuff for himself. God, give me a Maserati and a Ferrari and a nice ranch on 10 acres with a little creek. What is he praying? He's praying that he would be pure and holy and teachable that he might know more of who God is, that in this present trial, that the result would be that he would get more of God. Let me ask you, church, whatever trial you're in the middle of right now, is that your disposition? God, give me more of you. God, I, this trial, is it stinks sometimes, but I'm going to count it all joy because it's an opportunity to lean more into you and know more of who you are at this moment in my life. That's what it looks like to pray according to God's will, 1 John 5, 14, to lean more into God. God wants you to get more of Him. David is simply asking God to be God. Does God forgive and instruct sinners who listen to His instruction? He does. Does he lead those who are meek or poor, meaning poor in spirit, in his righteous way? Yes, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3. The Lord does not and will not neglect to keep his covenant for anyone who looks to Jesus Christ, his son, for salvation and deliverance. Though God's way brings enemy attack, though it brings opposition, though it is the narrow way, the tight way, the hard way, it is the good way that comes from a good God who is always good on His promises. God is faithful. He is faithful to do as He's promised, and His faithfulness will overcome even the faithlessness of sinners like David and sinners like you and me. So when we pray to our God, we pray to a God who is good and who is upright. And we pray without hesitancy or without fear, but instead with confidence, recognizing that God is great and that we are in great need of Him. Do you recognize your need for the Lord this morning? And we, we know that David recognizes his need for the mercy and deliverance and the power of the Lord in his life because of what happens in verse 11. Verses 4 through 7, it's a prayer to God. Verses 8 through 10, it's a sermon about God. And then look at what happens in verse 11. He goes back to the second person. He goes back to praying. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. So he's confident, and yet he returns to the subject of his sin, his, his great sin. Which shows us thirdly in this message, we must not let confidence in the goodness of God lead us to minimize the greatness of our sin. Let, let, that, let that point settle into your soul for a moment. 
I'm concerned about the church in America today. I think we've got the first half of this point down, but I think we've neglected the second half. God is great. God is good. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. He'll forgive my sin. And so it doesn't really matter what I do. So I'll just take Him for granted. I won't worry about my little hang-up, my little foible, what I do on the weekend, what I do with the guys. Where, where is that in the Bible? You, you can't find that in God's Word. Saving faith leads to a real sobriety about the seriousness of our sin. It leads us to want to go to war against sin in our hearts. It, wants us to, it leads us to mourn our sin and see how great it is and to beg our great God to help us go to war against it in Jesus' name that we might look more like Jesus and have more of a testimony of how God has made us less like our sinful selves and more like our glorious Savior. So David, after, after he tells us how great God is and that he will do it, he comes back in verse 11 and he's like, God, don't misunderstand me. It's not even for my sake that I'm praying as much as I need to conquer my enemies and as much as I need to be delivered. But in verse 11 he says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. Does this not remind us of Psalm 23.3 where he says, he guides me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. Did you know that both God's direction in your life and His deliverance of your life is for His name's sake? David doesn't pray like he's got something to offer God to make Him forgivable. He's not like, hey God, look at all the great things I did last week, so please show me a little love. He's like, God, I'm I'm despicable, I'm wicked, I'm fallen, I am broken. If I tackle these enemies in my own strength, and my own power, I have no hope. But God, for some reason, you've rescued me. For some reason, you've made me king of your people. So for your sake, so that your great mercy would be known far and wide, so that your goodness would be known, so that the whole world would praise you, God, act for your name's sake. Because if you let me fall, then what are they going to say about you? The only hope for David's great guilt is an even greater God. God, my guilt is great. Verse 11. The word guilt is, is perhaps better translated iniquity. It, it refers to intentional deviations from God's design for our lives. Rebellion and, and wickedness and wrongheadedness. And though, God, though David prays with great confidence, he does not downplay the greatness of his sin. And here's what I want you to get as we close this morning. It's a beautiful irony. You say, well, I don't like to hear about my sin. That makes me feel uncomfortable. Don't, don't let it make you feel uncomfortable. Let it drive you to the Savior who will forgive your sin and comfort you. You see, in seeing the greatness of our sin then we can see how much greater is our God. You couldn't forgive yourself. You couldn't remove your sin. Only God could do it. So He came down and wrapped Himself in His humanity so that He could become sin for you. David looks at himself and he says what we just sang in that song a few moments ago. 
He says, there is a chasm, how great the chasm, that I could not span. He sees the distance between his sinful, wicked heart and a holy God. And he says, what in the world am I going to do about it? And he says, the only thing I can do is call upon a great God who is great in mercy and who will forgive those who turn from their sin and trust in him. And so he says, God, for the sake of your name. For the sake of your wonderful, powerful, beautiful, and saving name. So that others might know that God saves sinners. That he keeps his promises. And that those who have great guilt can have that guilt removed by an even greater Savior. Move God in my life. And lead me to victory in this current moment against my enemies. That your name might be known as great. So whatever you brought in this morning. Whatever trial, whatever adversity, whatever affliction you face, I pray that you would pray for the sake of God's great name. That you would be teachable, that you would be moldable, that you would not let the world define who you are, but you would be defined by the Holy Spirit of God who indwells you. And if you don't have Christ living on the inside, then let today be the day that you say, God, my guilt is great. And the only way I could ever be rescued from it is if an even greater God would forgive me. And I've got great news. He'll forgive you today. If you'll come, if you'll come just as you are in desperation upon a great God. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we're going to stand and sing in just a moment. And we're going to sing about that beautiful, powerful name of Jesus. We're going to sing about the one in whose name there is salvation the only name given under given under heaven among men by which we can be saved and god we thank you that you sent your son that that you did deliver david and through david you eventually got us to jesus and that our savior has come in a way that he can be known and recognized and praised and glorified and god if there's someone here today who feels the weight of their great sin God, I pray for the first time perhaps today they would feel the the weight of an even greater God. That they would lean into Him with confidence and boldness. And that they would be delivered and forgiven and walk out of this place living for the sake of our great God. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.